Uh, so I'm uh, I'm a philosopher by training, but I'm I'm uh, I'm really uh, more interested these days in uh, history of science, sociology of science, and this talk is not particularly a philosophy talk, uh, nor is the book not particularly a philosophy book. Though philosophy does come up in the book, and that uh, I got interested in the intersection of uh, bioethics and national security 20 years ago uh, when I worked for a presidential commission on uh, human radiation experiments that have been conducted by the U.S. government since the mid-1940s. And I realized that there were these remarkable overlaps, uh, really the history of bioethics, in my view, can't be understood without knowing something about uh, the history of, uh, of the military and uh, how so many of the standards that have come into the bioethics world, particularly in the research, really came out of the military experience. Uh, so uh, uh, I have stayed in this, uh, in this area, approximately, uh, for the last 20 years or so, and most recently became interested in um, the way that uh, the military and intelligence communities are interested in, uh, in neuroscience. So as everybody in this room knows, we are in the era of big neuroscience, uh, the era of big physics might have been the 1940s, 1950s, bombs, uh, perhaps the era of big genetics, uh, the Human Genome Project in the 1990s and currently, and uh, in the last, uh, certainly I'd say 25 years or so, the emergence of big neuroscience, there are two big intergovernmental projects, uh, government projects that I'll just mention, there are many other projects. Uh, one of them, uh, I'm sure you're aware of it, is the Human Brain Project, which is mainly European. Uh, the goal of which is to simulate the human brain. There are people in this room who know more about what that means than I do. Uh, and um, the other, the President's uh, Brain Initiative, one of the few things that the President agrees with uh, the Republicans about, which is it's good to put money into the brain, as it were. Um, a lot less money, though, than the Europeans are spending. Nonetheless, I'll come back to that. Uh, the, the, the U.S. interest is more in um, dealing with problems like traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, dementias. There's much more of a kind of clinical immediacy focus to the U.S. project than the Human Brain Project. I do have to put up this disclaimer, and I don't really care, uh, but I am currently an advisor to the President's Biophysics Commission, which is publishing reports on, uh, on neuroscience and ethics. So, back to the neuroscience. By almost any measure, neuroscience is a rapid, rapidly growing in the last 25 years. Uh, papers published, <coughs> membership in organizations like the Society for Neuroscience, which if you go to a Society for Neuroscience meeting, you'll be one of 40,000 people, uh, not including people like me who sneak in without paying registration. Uh, at Penn, for example, we have a neuroscience boot camp for journalists and lawyers and others who are interested in learning the basics of neuroscience in a few weeks. There is an international neuroethics society that uh, people like Julian and me are involved with. Uh, so there's lots of neuroscience and also lots of neuroethics. We also know uh, that uh, the national security world in the U.S. piece, the military, is very interested in neuroscience, as they, as they uh, should be, considering how much neuroscience is going on. So this is data that's now a few years old. Uh, the the uh, comes from my friend and colleague, uh, Margaret Kosal at Georgia Tech. She just looked at the budgets on the face of it and saw that there's specific amounts of money being spent uh, on, uh, on cognitive neuroscience, which is just kind of the soft side of neuroscience. This doesn't include any of the connection stuff that 
the hardware sites might be doing uh, in these uh, government, uh, in these uh, in these agencies, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and DARPA. Which it's important that you know what DARPA stands for. Uh, it stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, which used to be ARPA. Uh, they added defense, I guess, for rhetorical reasons some years ago. And the internet started out, as you might know, as the ARPANET in the 1960s. So it's a cutting edge science agency for the Defense Department. Uh, relatively small, we made about $3 billion budget. Uh, and uh, then DARPA also had an additional $50 million at least through the President's Brain Initiative. So I, got, I began to get interested in this about a dozen years ago when, like many uh, bioethics people, I started going to neuroscience meetings. And it struck me that when I started reading papers from neuroscience journals, that there were uh, lots of experiments and labs that were being sponsored by DARPA and other, uh, and other military agencies. Uh, and it occurred to me that if you, if you could figure out what projects they were sponsoring, and you could do that easily, that's result public pretty much, you could see what, what they were interested in, what did they find provocative about modern neuroscience. So I kind of connected the dots, uh, as a former Secretary of Defense used to like to say. Uh, and decided to write a book about it. And uh, so this is the book, uh, Mind Wars, and these are some of the topics in Mind Wars. Now, and I, I hope you get the, the visual pun, uh, the, the brain, the brain brain. I wish I'd come up with that, but I haven't. It was a really smart artist like that. So uh, when uh, people uh, ask me what the hell do you mean by, you know, national security and the brain, uh, I say, well, you remember brainwashing. The old idea of brainwashing really comes up in America and, and, in, and in the UK, uh, as I'll explain, in the 1950s. Um, many Americans really learned about brainwashing through a book called The Manchurian Candidate. And I'm going to show you a, a little clip from a film that was made based on The Manchurian Candidate in the 1960s. The war in Korea was over. Captain or Major Bennett Marco had been reassigned to Army Intelligence in Washington. It was by and large a pleasant assignment, except for one thing. Night after night, the Major was plagued by the same reoccurring nightmare. This is Frank Sinatra, by the way. Concerns the influence of air. 
not all of which are Lord, have the same characteristics. Two of them do not share the quality of producing blue flowers in mineral rich soil. <coughs> Allow me to introduce our American visitors. I must ask you to forgive their somewhat lackadaisical matters, but I have conditioned them. Or rain watched them, which I understand is the new American word. Believe that they are waiting on a storm lobbying the small hotel in New Jersey where the teaching of the ladies' gardens must be thrown. You will notice that I have told them they may smoke. <laughs> I will ask my people to have a book in the selection of bizarre tobacco substitutes. So, uh, you have the idea. Um, what, what's going on here is a representation of a theory that many people in the intelligence community had in the U.S. in the early 1950s, that the reason that so many American prisoners of war uh, in North Korea were signing treasonous statements, uh, so-called false confessions, was that they had been brainwashed and that part of the brainwashing process was some kind of a new neurochemical. Um, one theory was that it was LSD, which uh, the fascinating history of LSD was hit upon accidentally in 1938 in a Sandoz chemical company laboratory in Switzerland um, by a man named Albert Hoffman, uh, and then LSD became some kind of an object of fascination, as some of you may know, uh, in, the, in the 1950s. At first, it was thought that it could mimic psychosis, and probably can't actually, for some people, um, and also that it might be a truth serum. So the worry was that if you took, uh, say you were an atomic physicist, uh, and you were at a conference, and uh, after the meetings all day, you went out with some colleagues, you know, and then they put some LSD in your drink, and in the language of the, of the 1950s, you could make a discreet man indiscreet. That's to say, you could make this uh, atomic physicist give up some atomic secrets, some secrets of the bomb, uh, by giving him or her some honesty. Uh, so this was a real worry, uh, and people wanted to know what was going on. So, you have to watch the rest of it sometimes. So, so uh, now I'm showing you a uh, formally classified, now uh, declassified document uh, from uh, 1953. This is a, essentially an accounting memo that says that uh, we're going to spend $39,500 on LSD experiments. This is a Central Intelligence Agency uh, document signed by a man named Sidney Gottlieb, uh, who was responsible, who was sort of the Q of the James Bond films. Uh, he, he, did a, he did the a number of these um, LSD studies. Uh, he also uh, he tried to get a poison cigar to Fidel Castro in a big range. Um, botulism based cigar. I'd like to point out that everybody who tried to kill Fidel Castro has been dead for decades. But as far as you can tell, he just goes on and on. Uh, so this was actually a, a, a document that was uh, thought to have uh, been part of a lot of documents that were sanitized in the early 1970s, but people forgot that there has to be an accounting document when you spend money. So they forgot about these files, and apparently uh, this is a survivor. So um, there were a lot of experiments with LSD in the 1950s, some of them, uh, not only in the US, but some of them elsewhere. And I'm going to show you a video that uh, got up uh, on the internet about a dozen years ago from the Imperial War Museum. 
Uh, it should not have been put up. Uh, my colleagues uh, who are historians of medicine uh, and the military here in the UK tell me that uh, they don't want to have that up there, but somebody decided to put it up. So I'll show you. This is from this is from a, a project called Money Bags in 
uh, the National Academy of Sciences decided that it needed to do a study of how the U.S. military was using uh, what is sometimes called parapsychological ideas, parapsychology. Uh, and so here's a, a, a quote from a report um, about the mind race. There was a missile race, you know, space race, and there was also a mind race. Now I read this to you because I, I just don't read anything in English, but I just don't read this. So um, this is from 1988. The claimed phenomenon applications presented by several military officers range from the incredible to the outrageous of the incredible. The anti-missile time warp, for example, is somehow supposed to deflect attack from nuclear warheads, so they will transcend time and explode among the ancient dinosaurs. Now, time out. I read a lot of stories about this kind of idea of time travel, and I was a kid with Phil K. Dick and all these really brilliant science fiction writers, and I know from these stories that if you go back in time and destroy the dinosaurs, or stab a butterfly, when you come back, everything will be different, right? Okay, so I, they obviously were not reading the same stories, so they would have been taking this approach. One suggested application is a conception of the First Earth Battalion, made up of warrior monks, including the use of ESP, leaving their bodies at will, levitating, psychic healing, and walking through walls. So, uh, you, know, you may be somewhat relieved to know that this panel of distinguished scientists urged the Army to abandon this project. Uh, nonetheless, uh, this report is online, you can read it, uh, and a, uh, a film was made uh, called, uh, based on a, a book called Men Who Stare at Goats. Uh, the, the idea is that these guys would try to stare at a goat, uh, and they would stare at a goat and stare at a goat, thinking, myocardial infarction. Well, one day, while you were staring at a goat, it collapsed. And they thought, hey, maybe it works. This goes down. So I just want to read you two real quick. What did the warrior monks Look like. K9. It's got a. Something's difficult to puzzle. Okay. Larry. This is Larry Skid Gardenon. I'm looking into the cupboard now. And I see. I see a tin mug. Well, it's a message. that have been 
sort of taken out of the out of the pharmaceutical world and brought into the national security environment in various ways. And I want to, um, and, and also having to do with uh, various forms of enhancement, particularly cognitive enhancement, that may be of interest in the national security environment. Uh, so uh, I'm going to come back to some of these. I'm going to say something about beta blockers and oxytocin, which is a, uh, a brain hormone, or a brain chemical we're all making. Uh, Medafinil, I'll say something about that. Very important, though, that what's happened in military R&D, which is somewhat new in the last 25 years or so, is that more stuff is coming out of the pharmaceutical world, like LSD, which is one of the reasons it's an interesting story, and then going into the mass security environment rather than, rather than the reverse. So uh, to give, take an example, this is a drug that I should have taken uh, when I flew times across time zones a couple of days ago to be better prepared for you. Uh, Modafinil, and how many of you are aware of Modafinil, it's branded uh, as provigil, uh, sometimes called the anti-sleep pill. Uh, experiments at the National Institutes of Health indicate that uh, if you are a normal responder, depending where you are in your sleep cycle, if you take this stuff, uh, you, you are, for 60 to 80 hours, you might be uh, awake and alert and have normal levels of concentration and attention. Obviously, you know, medical students love this idea when I mention it to them. Uh, this stuff is now off patent. I'm sure that there is a market, a gray market in Modafinil on my campus, as there is in, certainly in Adderall, Ritalin, and others, those sort of more amphetamine like stimulants. Uh, but provincial can work for you. Uh, it seems that, that uh, in the US, at least, our pilots are using it uh, in the military as a supplement to speed, which has been around for quite a long time, since it's going to be a lot more. Um, another drug that's come out of, uh, out of the uh, pharmaceutical world that has raised interesting questions for many people about its uses in the security environment uh, is uh, what's called oxytocin. Oxytocin actually is produced by us all the time, and now we're able to, to uh, bottle it, essentially. And uh, what oxytocin does for you, as many of you know, is it it makes you very social. You know, it's associated with, so, with, with social experience. You go to a nice, you have a nice conversation with somebody, you're making oxytocin. Um, if you're, uh, it's sometimes called the cuddle drug because supposedly after a certain intimate human encounter, uh, you're making a lot of oxytocin. Uh, unless, as I say to my students, you're male, which is you fall asleep, but maybe oxytocin helps with that too. Uh, it is, it's associated with trust. And about uh, 15 years ago, I was an economist, a kind of graduate school named Paul Zach got the idea. He's been doing these kind of competitive gaming experiments at the new business schools. He thought, well, what if I could give somebody a shot of this stuff and really stimulate a lot of it, you know, a big bolus of oxytocin. So he designed a little thing with, with some help, put it through the nose. And he, Zach claims that uh, in experiments in, in Switzerland mostly, that if you put people in competitive gaming situations with a shot of oxytocin, that they are more cooperative, more trusting of somebody that they are negotiating. So, interesting idea. What if you could give oxytocin uh, before you started to interrogate somebody? So that uh, you wouldn't have to play good cop, bad cop, as interrogators sometimes do. Uh, whoever walked into the room would be a good cop. Would that be better than waterboarding, or is that another kind of unacceptable invasion of the human personality in a different way? Uh, interesting to discuss. Um, also, out of the final world, there's something called, uh, 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 they're called beta blockers, uh, uh, and beta blockers are for people who have uh, heart disease, they help oxygen get to, uh, get to the heart more efficiently. Um, 
And uh, it was noticed that when people were on beta blockers, sort of anecdotally, uh, cardiologists are reporting this, that they, they seem to have less extreme emotions. Uh, and so people developed a theory in the, in the 90s that uh, if, if you had uh, been exposed to a traumatic experience, you had post-traumatic stress disorder, that uh, it, this might be a way of not only treating your PTSD, but even you could be perhaps given this stuff before you went into a, a potentially violent situation like your combat soldier. Uh, what it seems to do is it, it interrupts the consolidation of an experience with an emotion. So generally, Generally, memory works this way. You remember something like your first kiss, for example, because the emotion that was generated happens in the campus and then gets transferred and stored in other parts of the brain, as far as we know. So, what this seems to do is block that consolidation of the memory of the raw experience with an emotion. So, interesting. Why not use this if it worked? Not clear it works, but why not use this stuff? But prevent a lifetime of a very bad disease, PTSD. Well, People sort of think about it. Well, what do we want a, a whole cohort of soldiers who come back from having seen and perhaps had to do terrible things who don't feel guilt or remorse, who don't feel emotional attached to these experiences? Would we want a, a, a cohort of a generation of military soldiers? There's some examples of, the, of some of the pharma uh, that is, I say, moving from uh, from industry into a potentially mastery environment. Uh, now we get into some of the devices. So. You're all familiar with what's going on, I think, roughly speaking, in non-invasive brain imaging. The, the, um, the technology that uh, gets the most attention is functional, is, is MRI. It's a functional MRI, you put somebody in a big magnet, makes a lot of noise, very unpleasant, you have to stay stock still, very cooperative. And it, it sees where uh, the oxygen is going in your brain. Uh, it's, a, it's called a, a blood, blood oxygen level dependent measure, a bold measure. Uh, and, uh, there are people at my university, I'm sure here, who are making their careers on grants to do functional MRI experiments. There's fantastic opportunities for people who, uh, who can get these machines and run these experiments. But there are other technologies as well. And this is, so this is an example of using a uh, technology that is now over 100 years old, uh, EEG, electroencephalography. Uh, this was a DARPA uh, project that they funded back in 2003 to make basically a cat that would sit on, on, you know, sit on your head, nothing, nothing open, nothing invasive, and it would just measure the electrical activity that can be measured coming out of the skull, which is hard. I mean, the skull turns out to be very good at keeping sun inside. Uh, I guess that's fortunate for most of us. Uh, but you know, for obvious reasons, they would like to be able to measure these things. Notice, by the way, that this has all kinds of uses. You might say this is one of those dual use. There are all these technologies are dual use, civilian and military. So, for example, if you're a, if you're a, a, a neurologist and you've got a patient with seizure disorders, you might like to have somebody wearing this cap in between visits to the office because you can have a constant readout of what their brain is doing. Right? At the same time, if uh, if you are uh, you've got a, a man or a woman who's on assignment in a dangerous part of the world, perhaps alone, you would like to see what their stress levels are. Uh, you might even with certain technologies, come back to this, be able to modify their stress levels if it looks like they're getting uh, too stressed based on the information you're getting from this, from this uh, cat. So, um, one, of the, uh, one of the impulses that comes out of the brain that can be measured 
this way is called the Peter Hemp wave, which basically is a is something that happens to us spontaneously within milliseconds. When we think we recognize something, we make the peak too high. Now, we may not actually recognize something when we see it or hear it, but nonetheless, this is what happens. So, uh, DARPA is very interested in using uh, EEG uh, and some of these technologies to help people either to restore their memories if they've lost them, for example, people with dementia, and I've just listed uh, some of the projects that this particular office DARPA has been working on uh, using these kind of brain-computer interface technologies, uh, but also perhaps improving, or we might say enhancing, uh, the rapidity with which you can learn a new task. Uh, so uh, there are lots of projects going on DARPA around using EEG and non-invasive technologies, as well as some invasive technologies to try to understand how the brain works and maybe to augment natural brain activity. I'm going to show you one kind of silly experiment that was sponsored by DARPA a few years ago uh, called RoboRat. Dr. John Chapin has been exploring the minds of rats for more than 20 years. The culmination of all this research is a unique interface between animal and machine. Remote control rat. What we've been doing is actually guiding him wirelessly by sending signals from a laptop computer to his brain. And we also have a camera on his backpack so that we can see the world from uh, the way the rats see it. Chapin has gained control over the rat's decisions by tapping directly into its brain. A radio signal from the computer stimulates the brain areas that are connected to the whiskers. When they stimulate the left whisker, the rat turns left. Stimulate the right. The rat turns right. It does have a choice, but if it does as asked, the rat is rewarded with a hit to the pleasure center of the brain. He needs to get some walking. He needs to lose some weight. Hey, you need to be doing aerobics, guy. So, uh, you know, I know there are a lot of philosophers in the room. We can argue about their minds and what is the does the rat really have a choice and what does that mean to the rat? I don't know. But uh, you know, in any case, what they're really interested in is not turning rats into robots. Oh, by the way, this lab has also apparently had a pedagogical primate, uh, which they did not allow people to, to film. Um, what they're really interested in is how the, not a human primate, by the way, something worried about that. Uh, what they're really interested in is how we, how these connections work and how they can discover which neurons do that. Uh, and, and so, you know, they're very good at that. Uh, so uh, now, for example, you can actually get stuff out of the brain. I could have, every week there's an experiment that makes this point. Uh, this is a, this is a, uh, a study uh, that actually reconstructed a facial image uh, using uh, signals that it's possible to get out of the brain. The most radical version of this, I think the sexiest uh, uh, work that's being done in this sort of reconstruction of visual imagery is being done by a guy at Berkeley named Jack Gallant. So I'm going to show you uh, what he did. Basically, he puts people in a functional MRI, 
and uh, these trains and algorithms to uh, appreciate in a kind of dictionary what neural signals correspond to what kinds of images, right? So he's getting the signals out in functional MRI, and this is what they're seeing when they're lying down on the left, and this is the reconstruction that he's getting from this library of, uh, of tens of millions of seconds of images, uh, algorithms, and really fast computers on the left. So presented pictures on the left and reconstructions on the right. Uh, pretty fuzzy, but nonetheless he's getting something. Uh, and and Gallup is continuing to do these kinds of experiments with a bigger and bigger library of images that they can draw on and learning more and more about the neural signatures of visual imagery. Now these are people who are actually looking at something. Uh, a question that was, that was, I was asked a couple of years ago when I first started showing this uh, is what can you do it with reading images? And at the time I said no. Uh, well, it turned out there's a Japanese group that is working on that. Uh, they are working on reconstructing images. Again, it's very time consuming though because you do have to train the algorithms to, to cohere with the neural signatures of their, and, and also it's unpleasant because they wake you up when you have a cream. You're in REM sleep and you're, you know, your eyes are moving around uh, and they wake you up to ask you what you're dreaming about. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't want to be in that experiment because I, I'm, I'm a pretty bad sleeper as it is. Um, New facial recognition systems actually even recognize uh, a face better than we do by about 98, we're about 97% good at seeing facial images based on the study metrics, uh, and this is, a, this is a system that's about 98% good at recognizing a face, uh, which is, would be a real augmentation for me because I'm one of those people who, once in a while, I see somebody two blocks away, and even with my glasses on, I start waving, you know, and as they get closer, it's not them, you know, so this would. This would resolve a lot of awkward moments if I had Google Glasses in, uh, in this uh, system. So I told my uh, undergrads a few years ago when I showed them that, that, that video from Jack Donald's lab that that's sort of interesting, but that's from the temporal lobe. A lot of the, my, my neuroscience colleagues say it's kind of cheating because you know a lot of what the temporal lobe is big, you know, signals out of it. It's not all that interesting. And I said, no, they, no there's no, none of our other senses have been subject to this kind of reconstruction. So two weeks after I said that to them, uh, this paper was published uh, that uh, does something relatively similar uh, with uh, auditory signals. So this is also a Berkeley lab. I don't know what's going on up there. Uh, uh, but basically, what they, they've, got, they've got somebody who's got open brain surgery. They're putting electrodes in to, you know, to, to, uh, for like Parkinson's-like syndrome. Uh, they've got informed consent to put in some more electrodes. And what you'll hear is you'll hear a word as the patient hears it because they're awake. Uh, and uh, then you'll hear two different ways of reconstructing the way that that word sounds to the patient based on uh, the cells that are firing in the neural signature that they can get out based on what they believe the patient's hearing. So you'll, you'll hear the, a word and way to hear it and then two different ways of reconstructing it. And I think you'll see it's kind of impressive. Walter? Structure. Structure. Visual experiment I showed you 
says that he's creeped out by this stuff. Uh, he doesn't think that there's anything that's going to be sensitive enough to read our minds from a distance for maybe the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. So for some of you, it will be a problem. It's not going to be a problem for me, but for some of you, it will be a problem. Uh, so you probably know that there's some amazing work being done with prostheses. The early work was also sponsored at Brown University by DARPA. Uh, I'm not going to show you a, a quick minute of this. This is, called, this is the Brain Geek Project, which is now a company founded by John Donnelly. You are watching the most advanced brain-machine interface in action. Kathy Hutchinson is paralyzed and unable to speak. But just by thinking, she's able to control the movements of this robotic arm and drink her morning coffee. She's part of a pioneering study run by researchers at Brown University in the U.S. People who are paralyzed have their brain disconnected from their body, so they're not able to go out and do everyday things that you and I can do, like reach for a glass of water or scratch your nose. And I think many of us don't realize how debilitating it is, especially for people who have the severest forms of paralysis, uh, that's called tetraplegia, where they can't move their arms and legs because there's been damage to the spinal cord or a stroke that's cut the pathway from the brain to the spinal cord. So our idea is to bypass that damaged nervous system and go directly from the brain to the outside world. So the brain signals can not control muscles, but control machines or devices like a computer or a robotic limb. So you can read more about brain games, but fascinating. There's a lot, there's a lot about it on the web. You can see how this is dual use, right? Because on the one hand, uh, for uh, veterans who are coming back from, and now these days are back in Afghanistan, there's lots of people who have lost limbs. And it would be terrific to be able to give them a better prosthesis. Uh, and you can also imagine that someday you might be able to give a really good prosthesis to somebody who's lost an arm or limb and send them back into the field. And it might be faster and stronger because they have an artificial leg or an artificial arm. Uh, and there's even discussion about the possibility that people might volunteer to have an amputation to be super soldiers with these devices. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, you can also bet that if that's ever possible, there will be attempts by enemies to degrade those devices, right, uh, by hacking into the systems that control them. Uh, but you can see why, you know, it's hard to, there's a certain social imperative to make these things because they are dual use. So my mother, for example, who's now 97 years old, when she was 39, she had a chondrous sarcoma, when she lost her arm at the clavicle, the right arm at the clavicle. Uh, she, she's never been able to use a prosthesis, there wasn't enough left. But the devices that are being developed now would allow people who've lost a limb through, say, cancer or, or some trauma uh, to have someday an adequate prosthesis. So what I'm saying is there's such a, you know, an impulsion to keep doing this stuff, it's hard to see uh, where it ends. So, uh, this, is a, this, is, this is a brain to brain uh, experiment that was done at, at the University of Washington, Seattle. Um, this is a, we've got one, one young fellow in a lab on one end of campus who's wearing one of those sort of EEG caps that I described. Uh, he's sending a signal through the internet to another guy on the other side of campus who's got something on his head that will give him a little uh, jolt to just the right sector of his brain. Uh, it's, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation or uh, transcranial recurrent stimulation, two different methods, same concept. Uh, and uh, the, the fellow in one lab in the lab is having EG cap is just thinking about moving his finger to hit a target or on a monitor in a, in a game. Uh, and the other fellow suddenly moves his finger to hit the target without knowing if that's what's going on. That's the impulse. So this, is, this is what the, 
the, uh, the scientists call a brain-to-brain -brain interface. I'm not sure it's really brain-to-brain, -brain. it's a little like exaggeration. My interface with your brains right now is a lot more direct than this you know, device-laden uh, system. Nonetheless, it's provocative, and I'm sure it'll get more grants because you know, it's pretty cool. Um, this whole business of transcranial neck stimulation, you may know about this. So this is a cartoon, I think it was in the New Yorker a number of years ago. Uh, we found by applying just the tiniest bit of electric shock, test scores have soared. Well, it turns out that that's not so funny anymore. Um, you can go online and read blogs by people who are doing a do-it-yourself TMS or TPCS. They, uh, they, you can make these for, uh, for very little money. And it's, 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 it's like the current directed at a certain part of the skull. Uh, it's actually less of the current that's required to light a light bulb. It's very, very modest, which is why some people think it's really not, not really working, but who knows. Um, you have to get the targeting pretty, pretty good, obviously. Uh, and these, so these people will do some Sudoku or something and give them a zap, and then they'll record that they're doing better, you know, they're getting sharper, they're getting smarter. Um, so there are people who think this is actually working. Um, so this is a, a TDCS experiment that, in essence, uh, people saw that, for example, that bush on the left side and the top, and they thought after TDCS that they were seeing that they, that they identified that bush on the right as the same bush they had seen before. You can modify memory. And, and there are some people who think you can actually erase memory and so forth. Um, so there is, as I say, a, a do-it-yourself DCS community. You can go online. I don't recommend joining that community. Um, but you can also buy uh, a little device that's manufactured, I think it's $300, by a company called Fisher-Wallace. And I want to show you an ad for Fisher-Wallace. They don't have much money. I know somebody on the board said, we don't need money. So we don't really have enough money to advertise on television. But we made a series of ads for uh, the web, and I just want to show you this, and I'm getting close to my time. This is fun. So this is an actress. You don't say that anymore. Actress, excuse me, female actor. Uh, yeah, because my second was So they do a series of these. I, I'm perfectly prepared uh, to believe that this young woman has been using an electrical device to make her more satisfied, as you can see from that. I'm just not sure what part of the value she's using that. Anyway, uh, so maybe the most remarkable invasive technology is called optogenetics, developed by a number of people, but particularly by a guy named Carl Isabel at Stanford. And basically, what optogenetics does is it uh, there's, a, there's, uh, there's a protein called opsin, which is found in the retina. It's very light color sensitive. Uh, so they figured out how to get it into the brain of these laboratory animals. They put a fiber optic cable with a laser controlled light in the brain, and they can push this opsin around, uh, around through the neural circuits. It's really quite a really important experimental tool because you can, you can follow the pathways, which is never been possible before. And you can push this stuff through different pathways to see what the animal does. So this is a little example of how to make a mouse who's not hungry hungry 
using optogenetics. Here the, the laser light is off. Here it's on, very healthy now. We eat the butter, presumably salted butter popcorn. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. Maybe a laser if you didn't eat that. Uh, they'll turn it off now. Hmm. Yeah. What is that stuff? That's so interesting. I'll look over here. Uh, yeah, not very hungry. Oh, laser on, starts to eat. So you can imagine that uh, if, you could, if you could see what the pathways are, they have to do with with uh, the desire to be feeling, feeling famished, you know. That, that might actually someday be very useful for helping people with eating disorders. You could, you're not gonna be able to put a cable in their heads, uh, but you might be able to come up with some device, uh, or you might come up with a pharmaceutical that would try to kind of manage the traffic in, that, in those systems. So just to point out to you that uh, here in the UK, there have been some uh, projects, uh, think tank projects, around uh, neuroscience and security have touched on these questions. Uh, it's not just an American fascination by any means. The uh, report from the World Society, report from the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, uh, you can read these reports. Um, I'm very impressed with the, the Italians, who are definitely the coolest people in the world. Uh, the Air Bioethics Commission has also uh, reported, I think not, not a very good report, but they've had something to say about neuroscience and the military. Um, those of you who want to see what, what is on the Americans' minds, I was part of this uh, committee, the National Research Council, five years ago now. Uh, on the way that some of these technologies might be useful uh, in the future or might be useful to adversaries in the future. Uh, the, uh, what's really important is that the people who paid for this were the Defense Intelligence Agency. So it's important to know who paid for the project because that gives you an idea of who really interested in this stuff. Uh, at the same time, another committee was working, paid for by the Army, and I'll just mention to you that um, in this report, among among their other recommendations, they said, you know, you could actually use biosensors and EEG and trans transcranial recurrent stimulation. You could deploy this stuff in helmets or at least in vehicles within five, 10 years. This is on the shelf. You could be doing these things, some of the things I've been describing. Uh, as far as I know, none of this has been deployed because there's no money right now to put stuff into these kinds of high-tech gizmos. Uh, an important question is uh, what we do with all this stuff in the future. How do we get ahead of the technology to kind of anticipate some of the ethical, legal, and social issues? So this is a report that, I, that was published a year ago. This was DARPA sponsored, interestingly. Uh, DARPA asked the question, how can we try to get ahead of these technologies? Uh, because it's really hard to, you know, it's hard in our position to anticipate where these things could go, who could use them for what. So what kind of processes should there be to figure out uh, where this stuff is going? I'm going to stop there. Uh, and uh, thank you and look forward to the discussions.